Luke 19, 28 through 40. Uh, this is Palm Sunday. is um, is today the beginning of Holy Week, and um, <clears throat> and this is the traditional passage, one of the traditional passages, uh, where we celebrate the what's what's uh, commonly known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you will say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. And uh, Lord, we are humbled that you have revealed yourself um, in your word and that you have not left us in the dark. And most of all, we are humbled by what your scriptures principally teach, which is a Savior who lays aside his glory. to serve us in all humility. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship and sit under uh, the instruction of your word. Lord, on this beautiful spring afternoon, um, with so much to be thankful for, uh, Lord, we we are mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, we we pray for Egypt. we, uh, we, we, we cry out. We don't know what to do, um, but our eyes are on you. Lord, um, uh, we pray against the evil of terrorism. And uh, Lord, that you would bring an end to ISIS and its destructive reign. And um, Lord, we pray that for our brothers and sisters who are mourning on death this afternoon, who gather to do what we're doing right here, to worship and celebrate Palm Sunday, and, um, and their church exploded. And Lord, uh, we don't even know what to do with that. We couldn't imagine coming to church tonight worrying about a bomb going off. Um, so we, we pray. We pray that you would comfort them in their sorrow and in their despair. We pray that they would hold fast to the truths that they came to, to worship and celebrate, that you are the coming King who has come and that you will come again, and that vengeance is yours. Um, that you did come on a donkey, humble and gentle, with the good news of the gospel. You will return on a war horse to bring an end to all violence. Lord, we pray for Syria. Um, we pray for those 
Lord, struggling um, with this just horrendous attack and uh, just that country that's just being ravaged. Um, Lord, bring peace. Come, Jesus. We don't know what to do except to cry that you would come and end it. We're at the end of ourselves with all of this. Um, but we, we, we do not lose hope. We remember that Easter's coming this week, and it is, it is the dawn of a redemption that will end in all things new. Um, until then, we just cry out as your people collectively uh, that you would come and bring an end to all of this. Um, now turn our attention, Lord, to what you have for us here, the goodness of a king who submits himself. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I can tell I'm going to need water tonight. Can you grab me a cup of water or somebody back there? I don't know. Ian, Deacon Ian, can I get a cup of water? Thanks. Um, We are, if you're visiting with us, we are in a series on the book of 1 Peter and um, Holy Week and all of its and all that it is, always feels a little bit out of place because you kind of stop exactly where you are and you jump into um, these, uh, these, these the Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And um, in typically it's right in the middle of something uh, that you're doing in another book of the Bible, which is the case here. We're in First Peter. And we just completed a section on the call of exiles to live Live in submission in every way. Be subject to every human authority. Um, And it's been about a month and a half, two months of exploring this theme of submission. And it's been challenging for us. If you're a part of our congregation and following along with us, um, it's been challenging. Thanks, man. It's been challenging for all of us. For me personally, I've heard from many of you. And as I was thinking through what to do with Palm Sunday, I had, the, I had the idea of allowing this to be kind of the last word on the, on the whole idea of submission. Um, and, and here's why. In this scene that I just read, um, I believe we get to behold a picture of what Peter has been calling us to do for the past few weeks. I, I, what we get to see here is submission perfectly embodied in our King. We get to see what Peter has been asking us to do as he has called us again and again and again to be subject. We get to see that lived out perfectly in the Lord Jesus, our submissive King. And so what I want tonight to be is kind of an application of all of the submission teaching that we've been discussing for the past couple months. And when we get an application at the end, um, I'll speak more to that. What, we, what we're going to see, and, and it's hard to pick up on it um, in, the, in the passage if you're not familiar with the context, but it's a very strange, strange scene. It's a very unexpected scene. Um, I said something in a sermon a few weeks ago. I don't know if I, don't know if I was preaching here. Um, I don't know if I said it here. Um, it was something that was just, uh, it was off the cuff in the middle of a sermon. Um, I don't even remember why I said it or what the context was or anything. Um, but I've had a lot of conversations about it. It, was off, it wasn't a part of my manuscript. It was off my manuscript, which is, for me is a very dangerous thing. I manuscript because I don't trust my mouth. And, uh, and so it was off the pages of my manuscript. And I offhandedly said that Jesus is ugly. And 
And that kind of, some people were like, what? Did you say Jesus is ugly? And, um, and I did, and I, and I actually mean that. That was an off-cuff thing that I actually think I got right. Um, I stick to the statement that Jesus was not attractive. Um, that's an unconventional thought, but I believe it's true. I'm not going to start a new denomination over it or anything like that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, but I, I do think it's true. One, because of how Isaiah described him as such, um, not as a Jim Caviezel-looking figure, but as one from whom men hid, men hid their faces, but also because it fits what we have come to expect with Jesus, which is, gonna, is really fully embodied here in this passage. Time and time again, what we see Jesus do is take conventional thought, take worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the world, take the way our world operates, and turn it on its head. So in this way of thinking, we would say, yes, our Savior was ugly, outwardly speaking. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't it beautiful that God incarnate chose a lowly estate? Isn't it beautiful that he was one who outwardly, Isaiah said, nobody was attracted it is precisely because the Lord Jesus took upon himself a lowly estate, because he has, as Isaiah said, no beauty to attract us to him, that he is so beautiful and attractive. It is because the King of glory, who is the embodiment of glory, who is the embodiment and source of beauty, goodness, glory, it is because he chose to lay that aside that we call him so beautiful. And that is what we see unfold in our passage in this unlikely, almost comical scene. We call this triumphal entry. Um, that's probably what the heading of your Bible says. But there is nothing triumphant about it when you look at the details. But that is precisely what makes it so triumphant. I want us to see two things. Uh, this evening, I want us to see Jesus receive his glory and then surrender his glory. So glory received and glory surrendered. Now, I'm going to do something a little unconventional with the passage. I'm going to preach the second half of it first. Um, and the reason why that is is because I want that. Um, I really, really, really want us to appreciate and understand and even enter into the tension and the irony of this passage. And it will be easily missed if um, I don't do it this way, so I want us to um, appreciate how um, glorious and majestic this scene is, which really comes out in the second half of the verse, and then we're going to go back and look at how the whole thing started and hopefully see how almost comical and silly it is. So that'll make sense as we go along, but we're going to start in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, or even if probably you are familiar with the Bible, um, it's difficult for you to understand exactly what's going on here, but this is actually the outburst of centuries of pent-up longing and expectation. Israel's story, which is the Old Testament, it's the story of Israel, is, is not a pretty story. It is an embattled history marked by internal and external strife, by rebellion and opposition, by defeat, by exile. 
But there were a few exceptions, and perhaps the most important is found in 2 Samuel 7. This is really important to the story of the Bible. Israel has inherited the promised land. They're a unified nation. They are a happy nation. The greatest king, really the only really good king that Israel will ever know, King David, a man after God's own heart, is on his throne. And it says in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord gave Israel rest from all its enemies. Rest. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament where Israel is at rest. And so because of this, it became a picture of peace and prosperity. Kind of the, the good old days, the glory days of Israel, so to speak. But what made this moment most compelling was that God forever immortalized that moment by making a covenant, an agreement with David, a promise to David telling him that this peace and prosperity that they were experiencing is but a foretaste of an eternal destiny that is to come. His promise was that from the line of David, from the lineage of David, will come another king, and his throne will be an everlasting throne, and his kingdom will be a forever kingdom. And it was that promise given to David that became the object of Israel's yearnings throughout the centuries, through their sad, sad story of affliction and rebellion and even exile. Each generation would tell the next, just wait. Trust the Lord. Remember what he told our father David. Yes, our king will come for us. Our king will come. And this hope gave way to a common refrain that filled the traditions and the liturgies of Israel. One word, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. And that word, that cry, which was always on the lips of Israel, was directed towards the coming king. When they cried Hosanna, they were crying out, Come, promised king of David. Well, for centuries, hosannas of God's people went seemingly unanswered until one unexpected night when heaven breaks through and an angel of the Lord says to a virgin, you will conceive and bear a son. Now listen to these words to Mary after that background and see if you understand what's going on here. This is what the angel said. He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign forever in his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, you're pregnant with a promised king. The long-awaited king has come. And her son, Jesus, grows up, and he begins to declare himself that way. He says, the kingdom of God is here with me, the kingdom of God is at hand. And people talk to him the way they, you could only talk to that promised king. They would say, Lord Jesus, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in one moment, one significant moment, he turns his attention and his ministry toward Jerusalem, which is the city of David, the capital of the kingdom of God. The king on his way to the capital to establish his everlasting throne and unleash his eternal reign. And that's where we are in our passage. Do you feel how significant this moment is? 
They are literally standing in the culmination of centuries upon centuries of expectation. The triumphal entry, the descent of the King of Kings into Jerusalem for His great coronation. Let me read again those words from 37 and 38 now with that background and see if you can feel the significance of it. As he was drawing near, he's coming down. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, that's right outside of Jerusalem, right heading down the mountain into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. John's Gospel, when he tells the story, he adds this detail, that they took palm branches. That's what we call Palm Sunday. Palm branches were the, um, the national symbol of Israel, kind of their uh, 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 symbol of pride for the nation. It'd be like um, a Fourth of July parade where they, where they wave the American flag. That's what they're waving, the palm branches. They took palm branches. They went out to meet him, shouting, here's the word, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So they're swarming to him. They're waving their palm branches. They're spreading their cloaks on the road as a sign of submission to his kingdom. And most significantly of all, they were shouting to him the ancient cry that had always been directed toward the coming king, but they are directing it now. Finally, Hosanna has an object. To Jesus they cry, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And do you know what is the most amazing part of all of it? Jesus did nothing to stop it. He receives it. He basks in it. He receives their hosannas as appropriate, which means this. They see Him as the coming King, and He sees Himself as the coming King. Look what he does when the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, try to stop this, as they should. Because this is blasphemy. In verse 39, they say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, as if to say, How can you allow this? What are you doing? Don't you realize they're worshiping you? Don't you realize they're calling you the king? Don't you realize they're shouting Hosanna at you? Tell them to stop. Rebuke them. And then comes verse 40, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. This is the closest Jesus ever comes to talking a little trash. <laughs> don't, you, uh, don't you always want this from him? Like He's just always like, man, I wish he just would shut them up with this. Well, he does. The, the fun part about Holy Week is he's not shy anymore. He, he, at the, from this point forward when he says this in verse 40 and then he's going to go into the temple and he's going to clear it out and start yelling at everybody he's done he's ready to be crucified and he just, he just is unashamed with who he is and his glory so they tell him rebuke the disciples and he says I tell you if they were silent the rocks would cry out that's so awesome I'm going to be praised I will be glorified if I tell them to be silent, then I'll raise rocks up to declare me king of kings. But either way, I shall be praised. 
I love this moment. I love this picture of Jesus unashamedly basking in his praise and receiving the glory due his name. And yet, there is an irony to the whole thing. I chose to preach this part of the passage first to set up the irony. If you were unfamiliar with the scene, I know probably everybody here is familiar, but if you're here and maybe you're not familiar with the scene, I wonder how you imagine this. I wonder what you would picture here. Perhaps a king dressed in royal garments, upon a stallion, a war horse, maybe riding in a chariot, maybe on a throne, carried on the shoulders of his servants. This is common image for ancient kings. And that certainly would be fitting the shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But let's go back to the beginning of the passage and see what transpired leading up to this glorious moment. Let's look and glory surrendered. Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied, that's a donkey colt, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you're going to say to them, The Lord has need of it. The Lord needs what? A donkey? The Lord, the king, needs a donkey. What business does the king of kings have with the donkeys? You know, I've noticed some people recently, if you keep up with the blogs and and whatnot, um, trying to take away from the disgrace of this text by noting that ancient kings would sometimes ride on donkeys as a way of boasting and victory. Um, And that's true. Um, Sometimes kings as just kind of an arrogant display, instead of riding around on like a war horse or a chariot, they would ride around on a donkey basically saying, um, there's peace in my kingdom, there's no threats to the crown, I'm not scared of anybody, so so much so I'll ride around on a donkey. Um, And trying to to say that that's kind of what Jesus is doing here is a statement of victory or something, that that really misses the, the subversive nature of our passage, especially when you consider the prophecy that the king would come riding on a donkey as a sign of his gentleness, his humility. When the passage says, the Lord needs a donkey, it is talking about the need of the messianic king to fulfill that quirky prophecy that you heard read in your Old Testament reading. That the coming king would come not on a mighty war horse, but on a meek donkey, humble and gentle. The donkey was known as the mildest gentlest, lowliest of animals. Another, another name for it in the ancient world was a beast of burden because it was an animal who essentially existed to carry the burdens that people didn't want. A fun life. And according to Jesus, nothing would be more fitting to sit upon as he makes his grand kingly entrance into Jerusalem because nothing better reflects our king. Jesus is a gentle king. He is a humble king. He is a meek and merciful king. He is a submissive king. He is a king who has come to carry the impossible burdens of his people. He has not come to Jerusalem to do what the crowds thought he was going to do, to conquer. He's come to Jerusalem to be defeated. He's not marching in to take his seat upon a throne, but to hang from a cross. And so his entrance reflects the intentions of his visit. And so in this way, Palm Sunday confronts us with a really important dilemma. 
Which is Jesus? Which is He? Who is He? Is He the King of our first point, receiving the worship of the crowds and even going as far as to say, if I told them to be quiet, then the rocks would cry out? Or is He the King of my second point, humble and gentle, riding on a donkey to embrace His own defeat? And the answer, of course, is that He is both, which is what makes Him so glorious. The glory of Jesus is most fully seen as Jesus surrenders His glory. The tension of this scene, the irony of the eternal King seated upon a donkey is going to continue throughout this week as you follow along, hopefully with our church this week, culminating in a fateful day of great irony where the crowds will shout to Him, but not with cries of, Long live the King, but crucify the King. They're going to dress Him in a royal robe, but not to honor Him, but to mock and deride the King. They're going to crown Him. He'll get His crown, but it will not be gold and diadem, but a crown of thorns. And He's coming not to sit on a throne, but to hang from a cross, and above it will be a sign, a sarcastic sign, mocking His claim, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. But here's the grand twist. It was all a spectacle, mocking this man's outlandish claim to be king. Yet these were, in fact, his most kingly acts. It was nothing the crowds were expecting when they shouted Hosanna that day. But Jesus is answering their Hosanna. You cried, save us. I'll do it. It's not what you're expecting, but I'm going to answer your Hosanna. And in this way, his humiliation becomes his adoration. His degradation becomes his exaltation. His ugly becomes his beauty. His surrender. His success. Now, application. We've seen our king in his submissive glory. And I want to use this as a way to bring a conclusion to all of the submission talk that we've been in. What does this teach us about submission? I have two thoughts in mind that I think we need um, after the past couple months. Palm Sunday is teaching us two things about submission um, that we need to learn. One that is powerful and the other is that it's good. What do I mean when I say submission is powerful? A common misconception about submission that Jesus is shattering here is that submission is viewed as concession, as defeat. So when Peter calls exiles to submit to a Roman emperor, or even more scandalous, when Peter calls slaves to submit to masters, or when Peter calls spouses, wives who have unbelieving husbands to submit to their unbelieving spouse. On the surface, that may seem to you as a defeat, as a concession of power. But what we see in Jesus on Palm Sunday and throughout Holy Week is that submission is actually redefining the way we view power. Jesus defeats the greatest enemy of all, the enemy of sin, Satan, and death, by the weapon of his own submission. He defeats our greatest enemy by his own agony. I wonder if that strategy works for us. I wonder if we could start viewing submission as powerful. 
I wonder if Jesus, when he told us not to fight our enemies with power and strength, but to serve our enemies with prayer and love. I wonder if that isn't just a feel-good concept, but a powerful strategy against our enemies. I wonder if enemies are ultimately defeated with the weapon of humble love and service. I wonder if the way to defeat your abuser, the person who has hurt you most deeply, is not a lifetime of seething anger and get them backness. I wonder if the way to defeat them is the weapon of forgiveness. I wonder if the way to bring peace to an embattled marriage is not to win, but to submit. You know how marriages do that? I hope that mine isn't the only one. Where you're just kind of in a competition sometimes to see who's going to win, right? I wonder if the way out of that is mutual submission. I wonder if you win your spouse through serving your spouse. I wonder if the way um, to win your roommate, your parents, your neighbor to the gospel is through service. I wonder if culture wars are won not by militant arguing talking points with the culture, but by humbly serving our culture. It is certainly counterintuitive that Peter calls exiles to submit to their Roman oppressors and even to their slave masters. But it should be noted that Christianity took over the Roman Empire and ended slavery. How'd that happen? <laughs> by might? I, I wonder if Peter would have said, exiles, fight Rome. I wonder how that would have gone. I wonder if Jesus on a donkey is teaching us about power, the power of submission. But I believe Palm Sunday is also teaching us about the goodness of submission. Another common misconception about submission is that it's not good. An obvious application, listen, an obvious application of Jesus as king is that you're going to have to bow down to him as king. You don't really have a choice. If you're here and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, um, this week has really good news for you. It's the greatest news you'll ever hear. Um, this Jesus is offering you um, salvation. That's forgiveness of sins. That's healing and redemption for the ways you've been sinned against. That is an eternal destiny of um, joy and peace and at rest with the God that you were created for. I mean, Jesus is offering you everything you've ever longed for. That's the good news. Here's the other side of the news. He now owns you. I want to be very honest with you. He'll be your king or he will be nothing else. It's not a democracy. You don't choose him. You don't give him lordship over your life. He is Lord, and you can bow to him now or later when he returns. But he's going to be your king. And follower of Jesus, he's your king, okay? You don't get to decide. It's one-sided. He's in charge. He owns you. You do his bidding. Now, I'm trying to state all of this abrasively as possible for a reason, because we don't like talk of submission. We are skeptical of authority and power, and quite frankly, I'll just say this, we have reason to be. When you study history, you will find that every power, particularly absolute autonomous power, whether it be a king or a dictator, inevitably devolves into abuse or oppression. It happens every time. Absolute power is a very dangerous thing. And yet here we are telling you that Jesus will have absolute power. He is your king. 
So what we do, the answer of progressive society is to be done with the whole concept of submission and authority, particularly institutional authority. I submit to no one. I'm, I'm in charge of me. I submit to no one. Here's the problem with that. Um, you're, by submitting to no one, really in effect all you're saying is I submit to myself and you're just as bad as authority as any other external authority. Surely you've noticed that. I think if you're honest with yourself, you can admit that nothing is more destructive than the tyranny of self-rule. So we're going to find ourselves in a predicament. We have no choice but to surrender, but to submit, even if it's surrender to our own authority. But surrender never seems to work for us. So what we do is we vilify the concept of surrender, and I understand why. But what if, what if there was an authority out there that did authority opposite than what we have come to expect. What if there was authority? What if there was a power? What if there was a king who did power and authority opposite from what we have come to expect from this world? Well, how about a king on a donkey? That seems to flip the paradigm. How about a king who lays down his life for his subjects? How about a king who serves those whom he calls to serve him. What about an authority that sets you free? What about a reign that leads to your flourishing? What about a power that doesn't oppress you but saves you? What about a king whose majesty happens to be his meekness, whose glory is his service? I have a question for you. Have you ever regretted submitting to Jesus? Ever. Has there ever been a moment of regret for obeying Jesus. I know it's hard. I know it can make life difficult. But have you ever regretted bowing, submitting, obeying Jesus? Have you ever discovered His law to be anything but good? I know it's severe. Have you ever discovered it to be anything but, as the psalmist describes it, sweet as honey? And then look at your life. Have you ever regretted your own authority? I have a lifetime of examples of regret there. And I can say, with all honesty, in the end, I have never once regretted submitting to Jesus. What this shows us is that submission isn't the problem. The problem is who we are submitting to. You don't need to be freed from authority. You need a new authority. And there is no authority in heaven and on earth like the authority of a king on a donkey. Let me pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we can't thank you enough that though you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, you are the glorious one. For whatever reason, though we do not deserve it, you chose to set aside your glory. You chose to be a humble king. And because of that, we are saved. Thank you for the model of submission that you have given us. May it fill us, may it assure our hearts, and may it free us to serve as we have been served, to love as we have been loved. Feed us with the table of your submission now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.